You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. And remember to subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever else you might be digging out your podcast uh, because you're going to get a special free gift to subscribers only in that I'm not going to leave it up on the RSS feed for long at some point during December. Remember to subscribe, subscribe, subscribe and subscribe again uh, for your little Christmas free gift. And remember also this week, last chance to come to Angel Comedy at the Bill Murray for Redacted on Thursday the 15th of December at the experimental late show time of 10.30. 30 p.m. That's just for an hour, and it's a little experimental chat show, secret, non-broadcast, non-podcast thing that I'm uh, tinkering around with. So come along and see that. Uh, you can Google it for the details or just turn up. Uh, remember to go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour for all of the tour details for the uh, the show that compared to what that I'm taking around the place, uh, all around the country in spring. And now... Let's get stuck into this episode. Brilliant conversation with someone who has been a long-term uh, fan. I think it's fair to say fan of the podcast. Certainly a long-term listener of the podcast. And as you'll hear, uh, was way back four or five years ago when I mooted the idea of an open spot special, which I'm not doing. Um, she was one of the most vociferous, uh, bolshy, hey, you should definitely put me on this show, people. So very good to have seen her work over the last couple of years and uh, seen her sort of experience really into an incredibly passionate and outspoken comedian really good fun to talk to her this is Fern Brady thank you for coming on and climbing up all those stairs when you have a fractured ankle they don't know if it's fractured or if it's just my tendons but it's a lot less painful than two weeks ago okay so yeah this is and you i'm just thinking the most recent episode where someone else had a leg injury or a foot injury was liam williams yeah jumped out of a <laughs> or no had climbed yeah. onto a window okay so i didn't do anything as dramatic as his was quite just tell us what you did to it i was rushing to meet andrea herbert and i fell over uh on i felt a guy on a scooter rushed in front of me and i fell over uh you know those scooters that are for children but adults go on them oh scooter scooter like a, yeah like a it was like a, a hit and run okay. yeah and then some people dragged because i hit my head off the pavement so then some people dragged me off the road and 
I didn't want them to see me cry, so I got them to leave me alone. And someone put me in a chair outside Catford train station, and then I just cried in the rain for an hour with one shoe on. <laughs> till till um, my boyfriend's managed to get back from work. Because in Catford, it's just normal for a woman to be crying with dirt on her face, and it was really horrible. Oh <laughs> but people God. keep saying, oh, you must get, you'll get 20 minutes out of that. And uh, no, I've not. So I feel like I've failed at comedy that I don't have a hilarious bit on that yet. <laughs> <laughs> that, that reminds me of, I just, it, it's almost the only joke of his that I remember, but I saw Johnny Vegas at the Fringe years ago with a beard and he had just, he had a beard that year. And he said, one of his lines was, I'm such a failure as a comedian. I've grown a beard for a joke I haven't been able to write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was magic. Where to start? You, I think... Have, we gigged together on the, the Russell Howard um, yeah. stand-up central thing. How was that experience for you? Oh, I'm not even just saying this. That was a really great night because my friend, I'm fr- really good friends with Johnny Pelham and that was his first TV thing and other things I've done. It's not like I've been on with my friends and just everyone that was on was nice because uh, you and uh, Ed... Uh, how have I just forgotten Gamble. his surname? Ed Campbell. <laughs> Sorry, the, these are the painkillers I've been on. And, um, Bridget Christie. Yeah, it was great. I, I was really happy that night. Cause I, when I first did, uh, TV things, I thought everyone would be pals after and have a really great time. And it just doesn't happen. And then lots of people in TV are really thin. So they don't, they don't get drunk after. So I've got a really horrible memory after eight out of 10 cats where I was just sitting eating a cake and drinking and carrying and was talking about juice fasting somewhere in your pie. <laughs> and it just wasn't what I envisioned at all. Okay. Where are you in your career at the moment? Because you've done, you've done bits and bobs of telly. You've yeah. done two hour shows, three hour shows? Two. Two, two hour, okay. yeah. Uh, well, it's quite weird. Um, so the show I did this year, I thought was going to get really terrible reviews. Um, and I had a lot of nightmares for like three months before doing it and then it went really well so yeah nothing's gone the way I expected it because I got a TV thing before I had an agent and at the time I was just doing a job I was doing this weird job working with paedophiles and murderers Um, and then I got on Stuart Lee's thing and then I had to go back to doing the night shift with the pedos right after I filmed Stuart Lee's thing. So I'm, I'm not making any jokes there. There's no jokes about the BBC. There's like it's very, uh, a wide open like you know I was doing. A, it was, was it was like support. I, no, um, I wasn't doing BBC. No pedos. Sorry, was it my accent? No, no, no. I'm or, <laughs> I understand from from what I know of you that you were you've worked it with mental health people. You've yeah, with yeah, yeah, and stuff like yeah. Yeah, it was ex offenders. I wasn't allowed to work with any of the sex offenders directly. Um, so yeah, I got a TV thing because Tommy from the stand put me forward for it. Then I did yeah with ten cats, and then I was working in a call center like a month later. So it was really up and down. But then once I did my first two solo shows, things really got a lot better. And I had a BBC pilot that didn't get picked up here, but got optioned in America. Did it? Yeah. This is Ranges. Yeah. I watched that this morning. It's very funny. I will talk to you uh, about that in a bit. I really liked it. Thanks. Yeah, that's nice you said that, but I really was quite a control freak over it. Yeah, Raj's, basically I got back from the Fringe last year and this woman emailed me and was like, hey, I'm the boss of Billy Crystal's company and we'd really like to talk about Raj's. 
and I thought it was my mate Dave winding me up. <laughs> so, it, it's quite a weird email to get, isn't it? Like that's not, I've not yeah. heard many other comments going, no, have you got the Billy Crystal email yet? <laughs> yeah. So that was weird. So they were, they were thinking about doing something with it, but then when it didn't get made into a series here, despite very good iPlayer ratings, they didn't pick it up. But then they'd talked to C- CAA, which is Billy Crystal's agent about it so then bbc worldwide heard about it then i get this woman phoning me who was like greetings from la that's actually how they talked and then yeah they they like gave me money to not do anything to not have any involvement (laughs) okay they bought the idea they've optioned it and then i'll find out if it gets made into a pilot next year that would be great if it did because I could actually get a mortgage but it was just good that it got options because just having money meant I could preview my new show to death like people say money doesn't matter but it's really hard being skint in comedy yeah right so that happened and then I did my then my show this year did well at the fringe and then off the back of that another american got in touch with me and was like has anyone acquired the rights to your fringe show and do you want to do an audio album and there's this company called comedy dynamics they made like loads and loads of people's audio albums in america so i'm currently sort of tweaking my fringe show a bit to record that okay early next year but i'm going to record it here in the uk because for all I know, I could die on Mars in America. So I'm going to do one recording at McConlef Festival and one at The Stand in Edinburgh. So I hope that goes well. So, yeah. And you're only a few years into your career. When did you do yeah. So You Think You're Funny? Like 2011? Yeah. yeah, I've been going six and a half years and I've been doing it professionally for three years. But it's really only been the last two years that I've not been sort of living month to month money wise because I actually had, I had to temp as a PA just to get ready for my first friends show so this year was a lot easier because I just could focus on doing my show and what is it do you think that people are paying attention to like the fact that people from LA have been in touch and you know the kind of the tv opportunities that you've had what Mm. qualities of your act do you think people are paying attention to uh i don't know but i've started to think maybe i would do better in america than here because i mean i feel like my accent and my class is only ever gonna hold me back here and i'll own when you're scottish and living in england you'll always be defined as other like i get described as scottish comedian a lot and i never grew up with a strong sense of scottishness so i'm a bit tired of it um i think people think i'm forthright or uh quite blunt or something but i really didn't expect things to start going well here because like i have an archive of bad charter reviews so i just yeah the things that have happened in the last year i've been not expecting them at all but there's a definite type of person coming to my shows, which okay. is really, I find really interesting. So like a lot of female comedians like Louisa will get a lot of girls and gay guys, I think, at her gigs. I get guys with beards who are into wrestling and computer games. <laughs> it's so strange. It's just, And uh, the girls that like me are very intense goth girls. Um <laughs> So it's been really cool having the same people come back to my show this year 
And my boyfriend was looking at my Twitter followers and he was like, wrestling has a beard. Wrestling <laughs> works with computer games. <laughs> Do you know why that is? Do you know why that, that demographic is excited about you? Yeah, I think they like those men, like women, where they get the feeling of fear confused with the feeling of love because I'm quite aggressive on stage. I think that appeals to them. But it, it's been so consistent the last couple of years that's you, the people coming but to But you're kind of getting, you're suggesting that you get kind of submissive people yeah, because yeah. you're so you're so dominant on stage yeah very uh, the men are submissive and the girls that like me are quite intense uh girls sort of quite intense crazy girls so maybe they see something in me that's like a kindred spirit or something <laughs> um i tell you what i'm excited about you as a comedian is that and i'm, I'm sure this is part of your not that my opinion means anything. I'm just saying it's like uh, what, no, I, what I'm, I'm reading from starstruck. <laughs> <laughs> what what I'm kind of reading from the outside. You don't give a fuck, and it's so refreshing. Is that think, not true? Do no, not think- I don't think that's true at all. I just um, a lot of people will say that I'm really honest, but I don't mean to be. And like, I'm not very diplomatic, but I would like to be. I've been trying to practice that more. Because I remember Gav Webster saying to me early on, you have to just not give a shit about anything, but it takes ages to get like that. But it actually was only from doing solo shows and also living in London helped a lot because I started off in Manchester and um, it's a smaller circuit and I just really cared what other people thought about me. And then in London, it's so massive it's a lot easier to just not care. I get what you're saying. I'll, I'll ex- just explain a bit more about what I... Yeah. I don't mean ex- explain. <laughs> That's no, 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 But let me talk around the subject a bit more. Um, you are one of those comics who is very happy talking about the actual reality of your life. Like a lot of comics, I think, talk about their lives, but they sort of isolate the nature of being a comedian, the nature of the industry, their likelihood of getting reviews, TV, stuff like that. They, they kind of, they don't talk about the real stuff. Yeah. You know I mean? It's like people talk about their real lives as it pertains to camping or a oh, story yeah. about a wedding or, you know, so there's different, yeah. there's all, I guess there's a spectrum of how much of it you, how much of the nitty gritty you get into. One of the kind of uh, through lines of, of the show Male Comedian was about you not getting invited to oh, the so female comedian's it? brunch. Yeah, Did yeah, you yeah. see the show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so my, so my solo show was about why I wasn't invited to this brunch because I was really upset about I it. I remember seeing on Facebook how upset you were. The people who organised the brunch weren't happy about it, right? Because it's a real brunch. Sure. Uh, but I've had other female comedians get in touch and say, I don't get invited to that brunch. So it's a very, this is a hot topic amongst <laughs> female comedians <laughs> who gets invited to the brunch or not. But I just thought it, it'd be funny to do a show about the feeling of being left out. Because initially I was like, I basically thought, what if I do the show about this? And people are like, what the fuck is she talking about? Like, I'm not being invited to a brunch. But then I was like, I think the show did well because people empathise with the feeling of being left out. Yes, I, I definitely think that's true. And I think one of the, like a really interesting thing you talk about in a very funny way, but like the subject is interesting and I've never heard any other comics talk about it, is when you do material about your inability to make friends with women. Or not your yeah, inability, you know, yeah. the difficulties you have. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not singing that off, your absolute inability. No. But <laughs> yeah. as, as you described, the problems you have making friends with women. Mm. I'm like, I've never heard another comic talk about that. Yeah. And that's, like, that's a really kind of uh, honest 
and sort of new seeming element of your life. Yeah. And I think that's a really good choice to talk about that. So talk to me about the the decisions you make regarding what stuff you want to talk about. Well, um, I remember a reviewer said my my first show was more about what I wasn't than what I was. And at the time I was annoyed, but now I agree with them because my show this year was a lot more honest because I do find it it's just that I'm quite socially awkward and I get quite uh, nervous around girls like that Russell Howard thing Bridget Christie asked if I wanted to go and see Jenna Friedman the next day and I got so nervous I like didn't reply <laughs> initially <laughs> so I just do things like that your difficulties forming friendships with women is obviously like a true part of your yeah. life and we can talk about that but I was also asking about the the decision to put that stuff in the show as opposed to like you know you've you've got more I feel like you've got more kind of accessible clubby stuff like you've got stuff about your yeah. face and your eyes you've got stuff yeah. about tall you know it, like tall and oh, short my boyfriend, the tall, the tall and small leaf yeah. you know um but you also kind of like that might be like the first 20 first half yeah. of the show you also get into some really interesting topics well the way I wrote the show this year was because when I think about what cr- critics are going to say or what comedians are going to say, my brain shuts down and I can't write. So um, the way I, the only way I managed to write my show was by trying to second guess what other people were going to think. Like I did a big, there was loads of stuff about how I used to be a stripper in my show this year, and that was like, uh, like I'm actually hyperventilating. <laughs> Basically, that was like a nightmare to preview because I would get. I was so worried what people were going to think about me or say about me when, because I didn't tell anyone what, for years when I was doing comedy, because why would you? I basically just had to put out of my mind what anyone was going to say about that. And then, then it turned out people were saying, oh, the stripping stuff was the most interesting. And I was like, yeah, but it's not got enough punchlines in it. I don't like doing serious bits in a show. I didn't want to do a bit about stripping where I was like, and in the end, isn't stripping empowering to women? <laughs> like, I didn't want to have a serious conclusion. But I think you, you find serious stuff. You find, Like, one of the things you talk about is that you were never the victim of abuse, but one yeah. of the, like, the reality of the situation is the woman that said the most bimbo thing would be made to dress as a tiny pumpkin. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean, that's like... A, and, I have so many weird stories from stripping, <laughs> and, and I'm hoping to get it into the American recording of the show... Because, but it's so hard to practice that material at new material nights because you can't really do it in a 10 minute set. So if anyone has any advice on how to do that, please tweet me. <laughs> um, what, what, what are the, what, how do you mean? What are the difficulties that you're So I can't, with? I don't feel I can go and do a 10 minute set about how I was a stripper somewhere because I found it so difficult to preview. Why? What was difficult about it? Because I thought people were glaring at me from the audience, but they weren't. Like it was all imagined. I think there is a really fascinating quality that you have whereby you are fearless and petrified at the same time. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like lo- loads of people say that I look calm on stage, but I think it's just because I've got quite a blank facial expression. Because <laughs> I'm not, I get like in the, when I started comedy, I would shout a lot on stage, but it was just nerves. But uh, the see when I was trying to preview the stripping material, 
I did a preview with Richard Gadd and there were loads of good comedians at it like Finn Taylor and Matt Ewens and Finn's girlfriend Phoebe who works in comedy and then and Gadd's really hot sister was there and I started to think she was glaring at me so I was like well you're all obviously here to see Richard Gadd so I'm going to leave now so there was a lot loads and loads of previews I just flipped out and it was only once I did the show um, did about 10 shows at the Fringe that I managed to get that stripping material right okay but, but um there was a day where I got like the, I got a five star review early on at the Fringe and the day I got a five star review I like phoned I, the, the review hadn't come out this was the day the reviewer was in I thought the show was terrible because it was, it was a bad show and I phoned my boyfriend and I was like crying in a cafe saying I had to go home. And I, so it, do, it doesn't really make sense that the days, the, the worst days of the show were the days it got good reviews. And then Jay Richardson was in on a good day again and I got three stars off him again. So I've stopped reading reviews. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, probably, I didn't, probably I used to think how do comedians not read their reviews? Like Carol Donnelly doesn't read his reviews, but I didn't have any prob. I still haven't read my reviews from this year. Yeah. I haven't, and it's one easy. one or two of them kind of got sent to me, um, but I find it hugely, and I've said this on the show before, and I really enjoy saying it, and I want everyone to do the same thing. They're not for us. Don't yeah. read them. Isn't it brilliant when you don't read them? Because it then you're just a person a doing your job, being creative. You, mm. You've got your career. It's great. You don't need to worry about what individuals think. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I've got an awareness of what they were, but it's yeah, it's so it was so much better not reading them. So why do you think, having just said, you know, let's, no, let's no, kind of discharge from I'm quite from bad the, for not answering questions. No, 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 not at, no, not at all. What I, what I meant was, um, with me having just said, hey, let's not worry about reviews, I would like to talk about that thing. Why do you think a show that you thought was a really bad iteration of the show got a five-star review? What was it that they saw in there that maybe wasn't... Is it like, might it be that just, they saw something in it that you weren't planning to present or it's just that thing of you you have to be the most yourself that you can be in comedy but that's easier said than done and actually the day i always get upset early on in the fringe because it's just stressful and the day that i was crying and wanting to go home uh felicity ward like took me out for lunch and she was like it's just because you have shame inside you and if you have shame inside you we're always going back to that place of shame and I was like you should be a therapist or something this is so accurate so basically because I was talking stuff that I was deeply ashamed about that was why it was making me uncomfortable but I I was just imagining that the audience were all glaring at me but I mean most people don't know what it's like to work in a strip club so actually they find it interesting but I still found any silences excruciating I've forgotten the question again. <laughs> no, 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 I think you've answered it. I think... Um, yeah, I think it was just because I was being the most myself. So this is Fern. I'm so excited to think that she was someone who has... She's listened to the show a lot. And that's... Uh, I think that's really great. I'm really you pleased. It makes me feel like I'm contributing. We all know, don't we, that in my heart, all I want to be is Scott Blanks at the Classic in New Zealand. <laughs> I just want to be... I just want to be Scott Blanks when I grow up. So uh, the idea of having uh, inspired anybody and uh, helped anybody at all along their, their path in comedy is very exciting to me. So really, just... you 
you've got to make an effort to see Fern. Go and see her. I'm sure she'll be at the Edinburgh Festival again next year. You can track her down all over the place online. But she really is a really exceptionally engaging and very, very funny comedian. I, as I said to her during this show, I was laughing out loud on the bus. And that doesn't happen all that often. So uh, more from Fern in just a second. Apologies uh, to those of you. So something weird happened with the Chris Gethard uh, issue episode. <laughs> issue? I'm a magazine now, apparently. Um, last episode of this podcast, 189, with the brilliant Chris Gethard. Highly recommend his work, and I think it was a good interview with him as well, so give that a listen. But uh, if you are one of the people who download things and listen to them immediately, you will have noticed in the first couple of two two or three days uh, that the sound was very fractionally off. And there was a funny conversation on the Facebook group uh, where someone was saying, have you guys, are you, is this is the sound tweaked? Are you both slower and deeper? And then someone else commented, I think they were just tired. It was mid-festival. I mean, we were undoubtedly tired, but also the sound had corrupted somehow. That is all now fixed, so you can get that episode from uh, from wherever you normally get your, your episodes of ComCom. And also the extras, still available at comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras. And those are all of the extras from the Dara O'Brien episode, the Russell Howard ones, the Alan Cochran one, very uh, firm favourite for a lot of people. So uh, go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras to download all of those by signing up to the mailing list and then batten down the hatches and prepare for a once a year bombardment of emails uh, you can get in touch with me as you know info at comedianscomedian.com or tweet me at comcompod um, the tour dates are now all in I think they're all pretty much locked in so you can come along and see the show I'm really excited for you to come and see uh, compared to what the show I took to Edinburgh uh, just gone I always feel like saying Edinburgh last year and then you get what 2015 no th- this, this one the last the most recent one the comedy year, as you know, begins in September, fresh from the back of uh, an Edinburgh show. Go, whoa, what? Oh, God, I've got to do it all over again. So on that basis, that's the show that I'm touring. And it's um, it's really good, man. There's some great stuff. Oh, man, that bit about school children with their ties, that's funny. I mean, there's lots of good bits. I'm struggling to. I just was about to give away uh, a major revelation in the show, so I won't do that. I shan't bluster around the content anymore, but it's... Uh, it's bloody good. So come along and see that. Comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. The dates are all there. And while I'm just spruiking stuff, the first run of the new Soho Theatre shows is selling amazingly well. And I think I put on Facebook that it's uh, it's it's half sold out, which is, you're right, whoever commented on that, it's a ludicrous phrase. But I at least received the first show report and went, Jesus, how many? So get in quick. It's on the 23rd of January, and it's with Ellis James and John Robbins uh, from their, it's them as a double act entity that in the, in their radio show they do on Radio X and they podcast that as well so check that out uh, there's probably time to become a one um, you can certainly become a PCD by then this is all you know their lexicon that I'm borrowing here so get in touch and uh, come and see I don't mean get in touch I'm just in a general spruiking mood what I mean is get your tickets come and see that because they are selling out remember to subscribe for your special Christmas free gift uh, dropping on the RSS feed at some point this December and not staying up there long and also just subscribe anyway because the next three episodes are absolutely cracking. Next week, I think we're going to go with the Brian Regan episode that I recorded in Montreal. That was properly like meeting Madonna. I'm very excited about that. Oh, no, do you know what? We're not. I'm, I'm going to save that one for just after Christmas. Uh, next week is going to be Pappy's. I'll tell you more about that. Pappy's return to the show. And holy God, that was a great live episode in front of some baying Pappy's fans. And uh, it, I mean, I really, really enjoyed that. Chat to you more about that at the end. 
Um, and then coming up, we've also got Joe DeRosa, took that one, uh, recorded that one in Edinburgh. Brilliant episode. As I said, uh, uh, Brian Regan is just such a wonderful comic, such a lovely bloke. Huge guy. You won't necessarily know him if you're listening in the UK. He's not big over here, but he's colossal in the States and just tours and tours and tours. And with very good reason. And uh, Angela Barnes also recorded a superb episode recently as well. So look out for that one coming up soon. That'll do us for now, I think. You know about it. I'll, ch- I'll chat to you more after. Okay? Here's more from Fern. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I found with the show that I'm writing at the moment for next year, there's a couple of moments where I feel like there's a change in what I'm writing, what I'm doing, because like I'm talking about Brexit, never written anything political ever in my life. And I'm at one point I say, look, I haven't done the reading and fuck off neither of you. And that gets quite a nice laugh. And then it allows me to kind of reveal that I... I'm talking about my emotions about it rather than I'm talking about the research and the facts and figures and the Article 50s and all the rest of it. And I'm finding that that is hugely liberating for me because I feel like I can talk about how I actually feel. Whereas previously I've been very... Uh, I've felt very in a cage because I'm like, I don't want to risk saying something that reveals I'm stupid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and I think... But the most reason- audiences don't know either. Well, but yeah, <laughs> like- you, you might be right. I only mentioned that because you, I think when I watch your stuff and I was laughing out loud on the bus, what, listening to that, you sent me like your previous year's show and I listened to that. I genuinely oh. laughed out loud five or six times on the bus. I was oh, talking to myself. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's great. And part of that laughter was the sort of joy at how liberated you are talking about what you actually think and what you actually feel. Yeah, I'd, I just, uh, it would be good to keep... I think solo shows have really helped me because um, for ages I wanted to be a circuit stand-up because I feel like in London there's a lot of distaste for circuit comedy, but all the comics I like, I like like Paul Senna and Dave Jones and um, just sort of traditional like jonglersy type stuff. I feel like that's just dismissed in London. But anyway, I, I did I did jonglers for a bit and weekendy gigs. And I thought that would make me better, but then I did solo shows and I was like, no, I think I just want to focus on solo shows. Maybe there's a way of doing both, but... Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know, because uh, before you can make all of your money from doing solo shows, yeah. you've got to pay the rent, and I think yeah. club gigs pay the rent, and I think some club gigs do make you better, 
and some yeah. club gigs don't matter and some club gigs make you worse but yeah i'd like to be sort of somewhere between the alternative and the mainstream circuits i feel like there's a big divide between the two especially in london there seem there seems to be like a very alternative circuit and then yeah do, do you not think yeah i think so i think there's um like i naively thought of myself as an alternative comedian when i started really? before realizing that uh i suppose i'm quite mainstream that wasn't part of the yeah. plan but then if you look at some of the like we've mentioned matt ewins a couple of times yeah what yeah. he does i mean yeah. that is so fucking alternative yeah you know all the weirdos or you know the yeah. amount of really straight you know Target, you know, all, yeah, all yeah. The, the weird stuff out there. Yeah. Do you see yourself more as mainstream or alternative? Where are you at the moment? More mainstream. But then I feel too weird on the alternative circuit. I don't know. Like, I would never have... If I'd have stayed in Scotland, because I moved to England, like, four months into doing stand-up. And why did you move? Was that for, for work? Because I... No, I'd graduated uni and I was going to do a post-grad in Sheffield to train as a journalist. But I knew I wanted to do comedy and I knew there wasn't much of a scene in Scotland or I'd heard Manchester and London were the places to go. So I moved to Manchester uh, after quitting my postgrad. Sorry, I've forgotten the quit. I've been on these painkillers that have <laughs> totally, just destroyed totally my memory. Fine. It's also a conversation. I'm, we don't need to be. Uh, it doesn't I'm have so to be strictly Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just so annoyed that when I've, um, I mean, I really have rehearsed answers carefully while listening to this podcast. <laughs> That's cool, because I don't want to hear your rehearsed yeah. answers. <laughs> That's occasionally happening now when I interview people, because it's been going for yeah, a few years. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. interview people who've listened to a lot of them. I have to kind yeah, of go, yeah. I have to ask you different stuff so I don't get yeah. your preferred stuff. Um, so- yeah, so if I'd, if, I'd have, if I'd have done comedy in Scotland and stayed there, I can't imagine. I mean, there's hardly any women on the bills still the scottish and irish scenes i find is still really male dominated whereas down here there there's so many women doing it and also yeah it's just so different i love i mean i go back to scotland pretty much once a month um and i love gigging there but i mainly do the stands like when i do other gigs because down here people a lot of people think i'm glaswegian and think i'm really working class uh, so they, there's a notion that Scottish people are really aggressive and stuff, and that that works in my favour down here. But like, I was playing a snooker club in Glasgow the other week, and uh, they know I'm not Glaswegian. Like, they know what I am. Okay. And I can't, so I can't get away with trying to be hard. Like, they know what I am. I'm now. really interested in that. The kind of what? What are you? Well, like, I went to a good uni. I went to Edinburgh and. Like, I had piano lessons from the age of five. And, like, my boyfriend's always saying, oh, you lionise your working class identity. But then you're saying how your mum took you to all these extracurricular things, which is quite middle class. And I had quite a, a eight in quite a happyish way. So neither of my parents went to uni, but culturally I had quite a nice upbringing, I think, yeah. in terms of all the piano lessons and stuff and in and in london you can kind of you can either disguise that or that can be a revelation you can kind of play the dynamic between what we yeah. think we know about you yeah it's and the truth. i'm having quite a hard time with what people the things people think about my 
class here. Like, I was talking to my dad about this the other day. I did my solo show in Brasserie's Adele recently, which is this unbelievably posh place in Piccadilly Circus. And they had a piano on stage, so I was lying on the piano and then I started playing on it. And uh, people were laughing... And I said to my dad, like, I realised they're laughing because someone with this accent is playing, like, a Mozart sonata. Okay. And then I was just pissed off thinking about that. Like, <laughs> it just really... Cause on I, stage, or you realised that afterwards? St- no, I just realised it the other day, talking yeah, to my okay. dad. Um, yeah, I'm just sick of the, the stuff. Like, I was saying to someone, I had a meeting with someone at the Fringe, and I said, oh, my mum's moving house, because she lives in a house now where all the neighbours look down into the garden. And he was like, mm, a high-rise, a high-rise flat. And I was like, no, I'm not from a high-rise flat. <laughs> and then I, then I had a meeting at the BBC this year where they wanted me to host a documentary in a women's prison in Scotland, because I wrote a Guardian article about how I got in trouble for fighting when I was 18 which to the media classes makes me Al Capone and they were like this this posh guy I had the meeting with was like so as I understand it you were in a women's prison like no I fucking wasn't in women's prison like what do you think about me I I mean I, I thought about doing next year's show about that kind of thing it really winds me up is there something a bit contradictory about your choices with kind of the media like you've written these pieces for the guardian yeah and by the way that's how i got everything in comedy it wasn't from like gigging a lot on the circuit every opportunity i got in comedy was from writing not funny articles in the guardian because posh people who work in telly read the guardian it's just insane how everything i got was from that but at the same time, I mean, you're sort of, you sound quite sort of dismissive of that, but they are intelligent, impassioned, well-written pieces. Oh, Why shouldn't thanks. you get And crucially, you can't hear my accent. <laughs> yeah, right. Because uh, my voice, I sound like an idiot when I talk, but then I'm telling you, that's how I got everything because you can't hear my accent. Uh, and there's definitely, because the media is so dominated by RP accents, I mean, even to get into journalism school, I, I was on a diversity scholarship because right. it's so it's so dominated by privately educated people. So, yeah, that's honestly how I got everything. And that pisses me off, but at the same time, I'm glad I did that because I was really floundering at the time I was writing those Guardian articles. I, I really wasn't getting anywhere. <laughs> and you... Just something that occurs to me is, at least in the first one, I can't remember if this is true of all of them, but you were answering uh, comments. You were in the comment section, like as yourself, replying to people's comments. My first article. I think it was the first one. Uh, the first one was just about um, having a criminal record, which was quite a big gamble. No, it wasn't. It was in the... Co- everything I've written is just for the Guardian comment section, but it wasn't responding to a comment. I, no, I mean, you you as Fern oh, Bailey yeah. were posting, you were replying oh, yeah, to people's inc- comments. Oh, I just, God, I've ne- you've really researched this. Yeah, well, I, you know, I just, that, that yeah, caught that's... my eye because I've never seen anyone do that before. It's because like, they encourage that, you. That is, in- oh, okay, all right. I was thinking that is very Fern to go, right, there's the piece. I'm standing no. in the comment section, bring it no, on. No, <laughs> no, it's because the editor encourages you to do that. I mean, and because it was my first time, I was like, oh, I'd better do this. But then after that, I didn't want to do it. Because I don't like reading the comments. No. I'd like to go back to the old days of journalism where people have no say online. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> 
so um, yeah so you you're writing these pieces and you i mean do you feel i don't know if dismissive is the right word but like how do you feel about the fact that writing those pieces kind of gave you a, a way into comedy do you feel like that was an unfair advantage are you proud of it i, I feel like you should be proud of them They're good i'm really pieces. glad i did it and i think it taught me that you have to be proactive because prior to that i think there's a problem in comedy with people saying why why hasn't stuff happened for me and it's like well you have to keep making stuff and putting things out there because i really was getting nothing at all like at the time of writing those guardian things i was on the dole and i was doing a zero hours contract with like working with the murderers and stuff and Steve Bennett and Bruce Dessau had just given me horrible, horrible reviews. So I wasn't getting booked. Um, and then, yeah, I'm so glad uh, I wrote those Guardian things. Because then off the back of that, uh, a sequence of events happened where Tommy Shepard put me forward for Stuart Lee's thing. And then during the, when Stuart Lee interviewed me for that programme, he mentioned the Guardian articles. And I was like, that's so mad that everything has happened. Yeah. Everything happens just from, from writing them. And that's a real kind of, that's a, that's your indie credentials for a good few years, isn't it? If you've done yeah. Stuart, that Stuart Lee show. I don't know what, well, it was a shame because the second series, I don't think many people watched it because the Comedy Central just put it on really late. Um, but yeah, it's, it was a good thing to do. Also, when I did that, I didn't, I didn't realize how great it was that they don't, they didn't control what you were saying at all. Cause then I did, I did stand up on another show where you had to like submit a script word for word to what you were going to say. And the producers were just at you and at you. So yeah, it was really good how he just let, let you do what you want. So in your first show, you talked about ending up being interviewed by Christian Guru Murthy. Oh God, that was absurd. Okay, well, okay. T- tell me, tell me how absurd it was because I've got a question about how absurd it was. You certainly present it in your show as they asked me; these people rang me up and asked me to come on and talk about this stuff, and I'm totally yeah. unqualified to talk about Scottish independence. Yeah. So on the Monday of that week, I was on yeah with ten cats, and then on the Friday. Uh, my agent at the time phoned up and was like, Channel 4 News wants someone to go on and talk about Scottish independence. And I am sort of pro-independence, but not in a way that I know anything about it at all. Uh, like Johnny Pelham said that my views on politics are like a child's views. <laughs> and my boyfriend works in politics and like I got asked to go on question time and he was begging me not to because he, he just knew it was going to be a disaster. <laughs> um, so my agent told me, if you go on the news to talk about Scottish independence, you will be able to get on eight out of 10 cats again. Something I now know to be a ridiculous lie, but I thought it was true. So I agreed to it. And then... Then I was sitting in front of Krishan and Guru Murthy and the whole thing just felt very real once you're in the new studio. And uh, my agent was like, oh, you should wear a nice dress. But they didn't give me time for that. So then I was just wearing the jumper that I'd been wearing to clean in the house. And it was just absurd. And I'd phoned my mate, Ellen. There's a comedian, Eleanor Morton, who is so into Scottish independence and she wears like little SMP badges and 
So she told me a couple of things to say. So I just went on, parroted what she'd said. Then I just made stuff up and I said, oh, the English are all colonising us and stuff. (laughs) And then I just thought, I just didn't think anything would happen. Then I was out that night with some comedians and then my phone, my Twitter just started going mad with people saying, I hope this bitch gets deported. And then SMP people being like, she is a hero of independence. (laughs) And I just, so I wanted to, I got annoyed because I didn't want either side claiming me. So I did, so in my show, I was just like, I don't give a shit about either of those things. I just want to be famous. I care more about being on TV than any political thing. That is, okay, so there's there's a whole... Because it annoys me how much comedians want to be taken seriously now. There's a... yeah. There's a thing where comedians all want to be taken seriously politically, and then Ed Balls is on Strictly Come Dancing, and and then Nick Clegg did, did the mimed a Carly Rae Jepsen thing for a music video. It's all back to front, and I, I don't really like it. So my question was going to be: when you did, like, when you talk about it in the show, you're like, they rang me up and asked me to be on TV. They presumably rang you up in the context of you've written articles for The Guardian. Yeah. You are, a, you know, you, you have established yourself as a cultural commentator. It, no, it was because I was on Cats that week and I was Scottish and I lived in London. I mean, okay. that's... The but, you had written, but you'd written a Guardian article, so you're like... I hadn't a, written a, anything about Scottish independence in my life. Okay, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah okay. no. Yeah, yeah. Th- this was the only reason they asked me, was <laughs> I was Scottish, and I'd been on TV that week. Okay, so, and you said yes. I said yes, because they were giving me money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did, okay, yeah, you did refer to that. I was going to ask if that was true. So that you yeah, were paid to do a news interview. Yeah, yeah, that was the only reason I did it. Okay. So that was what I was trying to make clear in my show. I still have, like, Scottish journalists who are in favour of independence, I think giving me good reviews because they saw that Channel 4 News thing and I just get annoyed and I want to just destroy it and be like, no, you can't. That is fascinating. What a weird journey through that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've ended up, I guess, you've been quite deft in how you've then decided to nip that in the bud by going yeah. here we go and, and that's and that's a very funny angle to take with it as well as i don't care about this important the thing that's important to you i don't care about this important thing that's important to you i just want to be famous yeah it yeah. kind of wipes the slate clean very effectively yeah i just don't want to be a comedian that is like a professional um opinion giver because i've turned down a lot of those kind of things like um well, to be fair, the question time thing was more of a me failing the vetting process. <laughs> but, and also my boyfriend was like, just please, please don't go on it. Okay. But yeah, what I went... What do you think would have happened if you had gone on? Oh, God, it would have been a disaster. Like, um... Eleanor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get an earpiece. <laughs> I, I have actually, I do a political um, topical show in Scotland called Breaking the News. And I have had to ask my boyfriend to explain things to me before. It's that's interesting that you and this is this is sort of tangential, but you are you are educated and you yeah. are you know you've got. But, a, but if I'm do, if I'm not interested in a topic, my brain doesn't cling on to it. So like I'm really interested in Scientology, and I read a lot about that. Or I'm interested in like LGBT stuff, and I will read a lot about that. But I had to write jokes on Trident 
for breaking the news and yeah. god that was dreadful hence the little mermaid bit presumably. yeah that, well, was, that was the only reason yeah. that got re- i really love doing this this breaking the news show because i have to write jokes on stuff i would never write about so it's almost like in, in a kind of way you have um you have accidentally pitched yourself as a person yeah. who's a topical comedian yeah, and as a result comedian. you're having to learn how to be a political comedian yeah, you're learning how to, how to field those things and, and that kind of works like what we were saying before about the agency that you have to to just go your own way on a topic like you don't have to be you don't have to be Mark Steele going right I've done all the reading here's yeah, what I think yeah. actually you can do a little mermaid joke and yeah. if it's funny enough you're allowed to be there yeah, on, honestly, like writing for that, because um, the money is not very good. Although I do hope they continue to book me. Uh, but <laughs> I love when people say stuff like that. <laughs> totally get where you're coming from. Um, but, but see, every, and I've never worked so hard for anything. Uh, every episode of that show, I'll write for nine hours the day before, and because the topics are so dry it forces your brain to get creative. So I just try and make sure I have something to say for every topic. I, like, I never thought I would do, I would enjoy panel shows because I've done a lot of panel show auditions. But it's just really good because you have to be creative. Okay, so let's talk about that creative process as it pertains to something like Breaking the News mm. or, or a panel show. They give you the package of like, this is the stuff, these yeah. are the things we're going to hit. What's your first approach? What are your first steps on being given a, a really dry topic? This is my thing that I always do. And I'm slightly embarrassed to say it because now I'm worried if anyone listens to this and then listens to my stuff, they'll see that I do it. Okay. If there's a topic I know nothing about at all, I just turn it to, I twist it so I, I can say something about something weird that happened to me. So the way I got on it out of 10 cats, because I never, I was the last person that anyone would have expected to get on that. The audition was all like Avalon and off the curb acts and just the kind of people you would think would be at that audition. I didn't know how I'd got the audition for it. And then one of the topics was like, oh, footballers are getting paid loads and loads these days. And I was like, I have nothing to say on that. And I don't remember the exact line, but I said, oh, I used to get paid loads. And I talked about like one time when I was a stripper, um, Colonel Gaddafi's nephews were in the club and like offered me all this money to dance for them. And the audition for Cats is in front of all these Endemol staff and they all just started laughing. And that was basically what got me on because they just thought, I think they thought I was just making stuff up or something. (laughs) Or, I mean, either that, or they kind of recognised that you would. You presumably no one else was taking that approach. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like they, you're you're a you're a an asset to a panel show. I think. Well, I met um, a guy that writes for it. A, a girl I'm friends with, her boyfriend writes on it, and he said, "All they're looking for in panel shows is for you to have a distinctive persona from the off." And actually. Um, it helped that I'd never done an audition for one before. Because see, after that, once I knew how much money you got for them and what was at stake, I've had a ton of auditions for them since. And I do the classic mistake of, this is what they must want from me at a panel show audition. And then I just mess it up. 
like the best ones I have are where I can be completely myself. But it's easier said than done, to be honest. I think that's really smart. I I, I 100% agree with that. And I think it's also really interesting that you're aware of that, but you can't necessarily overcome that at this stage. No. Like, I, I know exactly what you mean. They want a distinctive person. I think very often when you see someone on a panel show, as an audience member, you go, oh, of course they're doing panel shows. Of course they're, yeah. the, of course they're part of the new raft of people who are now going to start getting all the panel shows. Yeah. You kind of go, oh, yeah, because there isn't one of them. There isn't a yeah. person with that angle, with that background. Mm. You go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That Realising that is a really important part of the puzzle, but mm. at the same time that doesn't necessarily means suddenly you are able to fulfill that role yeah there's and there there's there is a place for weirdos though as long as you're i mean like if you look at joe wilkinson he's weird and um james acaster has a really distinctive persona and so yeah i think there's a place for weirdos but i always what i'd like to do more panel shows just to get more people to come and see my shows i still think being a female comedian you have to be thin I'm pretty, but I don't know. Because then I'm like, I have done a few things looking the way I look, so maybe there's nothing to worry about. Tell me if this is if this is uh, territory that we shouldn't go into. But you're pretty thin, and you're quite, no, you're, you're quite pretty. Oh, thank you. No, do you <laughs> but, know what I mean? Like, I feel that obviously <laughs> this is a difference. Sorry, I thought this you were is... going to be like, fair, why don't you just stop eating bread? <laughs> okay, eggy territory. But you see, the point I'm making, you are a fairly thin, attractive young woman. And... Yeah, in Scotland, I'm thin, but... <laughs> <laughs> but like, because I, re- I read the Guardian piece that you wrote about if you want to get on TV as a woman, yeah. you need to be posh or pretty. But I mean, how can I say that now? Because I've been on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I can't. I mean, I can't, and I can't complain. I complain a lot about privileged people getting ahead, but I can't really complain about that. I think it's. I don't know. I think you can still complain about it, even. And I think you well, have done a lot in the past. People... You can still complain about something that benefits you because there's an yeah. awful lot of people who are prepared to but I'm not, not mention it. Loads of people are subsidised by their parents and comedy. Because for ages I was like, how am I on telly and I'm still skin and stuff? And then you find out loads of people, like, their parents are just fucking paying their rent and they're not... Or a lot of London comedians still have to live with their parents. So that was when I was like, oh, I'm doing all right. (laughs) Anyway, about the the thinness, I think... Because the first time I seen myself on something, I was like, why did no one tell me I was fat? And then obviously I got tweeted with people saying like about my weird face and that but um so i think it's just once you see yourself on i have to believe that you you can be removed from because what you've just described sounds to me like someone with perhaps low self-esteem to do with their body image yeah reading the fucking comments like that those two (laughs) things neither of those two things are a representation of reality yeah um, and I, I, I'm listening to your material about it, your hammerhead shark stuff, all the rest of it. Yeah, thinking, you know, you this has to be material. Like, you can't believe the stuff that you're saying. No, I do believe it. Like, <laughs> no, I do. I just, uh, I, like me and my boyfriend have this ongoing thing where I've said, look, I need to get because I broke my nose a few years ago. I'm very accident prone. I opened the door into my face. And then once I started seeing myself on programs, I was like, oh, shit, I need to get a nose job. 
And what? <laughs> yeah, but a couple of people have said I've got uh, that body dysmorphia thing, but I think I've just got eyesight and a good sense of what a symmetrical I, I face. I think that's what body dysmorphia feels like. No, I think I know what symmetry is. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, my boyfriend was like, if you get a nose job, that will be your vanity has gone too far and I will punch your nose sideways when you come, <laughs> come back from it. But yeah, I do, uh, see, this is what I hate about, obviously, stripping, I didn't mean to mention stripping so much. Since doing the show about it, because I didn't talk about it for years. Now it's all I want to talk about. Sure. But stripping was so... Everything was so focused on looks. Um, and then when I went into comedy, I, just, I could dress really boyishly. And I was like, this is great because everything's focused on what you say. And then I got really annoyed once I started trying to get bits of TV. Because you're like, oh, I'm just back to being judged for how I look. And it's qu- quite frustrating to... Cause I just want, I just want to be a comedian. I don't want to act in anything or that. Um, but I do feel like getting ahead in comedy will, it will be heavily based on how I look. Okay. You do get, I mean, female comedians do get told to lose weight for stuff. I think it happens with male comedians as well. Cause if you look at old pictures of Russell Howard, like I think he works out a lot now and, I think Joe Lysett lost weight and looks incredible. And yeah, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't like to hazard a guess as to why people are doing that. I can only. I mean, I know that like Russell Howard is a big fan of exercise. Yeah. I don't know about Joe's personal sort of thing. Oh, none do- of this is. These are all like. Com- this, these are all like the comedians that I think of as my for inspiration when I go running sure, and stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, God, that maybe I should start doing either of those things. What? <laughs> uh, no, like, there's... I notice a lot of comedians, once they start getting on more stuff, they will... They, they drop weight, so I think it's quite a common thing for people yeah, to... Yeah, I wonder how much they are having pressure applied to them by the industry and how much... I mean, my, my take on that has always been that I've thought... I think... Okay, here, here, here are my assumptions, <laughs> yeah, which I don't, I don't know whether these are valid or not. I can imagine, and I've heard a lot from female comics that I've had on the show and that I've talked to, yeah. that they have pressure applied on them gently and insidiously yeah, to yeah. lose weight, you know, look, tell people they're younger than they are, stuff like that. Yeah, that happened to me. Yeah, yeah. right. I mean, I, I've been told that, I, no, it has been suggested to me by a high up industry person that I dye my hair. Because I've got very great, oh, you know, I'm you, quite you great. You look at the very side. young, though. Oh, thank you. Well, I think yeah. their angle was, you look so young. Why don't you dye your hair? Because it's giving the game yeah. away, you know. But I certainly wasn't. No pressure was put on me. But I've always assumed when guys, when male comics lose weight, it's because they've gone, hey, hey, I can get chicks now because I'm funny, and that they've wanted to, rather than because people, shadowy TV execs, have been saying you've got to look. Oh, I, I thought they did it for. TV, um, but yeah, de- it definitely happens with women. We're much as feminism's so zeitgeisty now. We're still very much living in an age where women are valued on how much they can look young and how they can look beautiful and stuff. And I think people just don't talk about it. They just pretend it doesn't exist. Why do you think people don't talk about it? Why do you think women, female comics, don't talk about it so much? Like in the in the way that you do a lot, you're one of a, a fairly small group Maybe they of women don't that you go. Oh, Fern will speak her mind. Maybe they don't realise, but I would. I, I mean, 
Joan Rivers has a saying that no female comedian was pretty as a child, which I think is really true. So I think once you know the uh, pain of being an ugly, mustachioed, specky child, like you know that you're not valued for your looks. That's why a lot of a lot of female comedians were ugly children, and it means you have to be funny at school to to compensate. Okay. But I'm, I don't know. I'm, why I'm saying you're... that with, with there's reservation in my voice because I'm just thinking that that does that not play into an idea that comedy is a. I mean, well, what do you think of that? The idea that that there are more male comedians because comedy is more of a a transactional thing for men, whereas growing up we socialise by mocking each other, whereas women tend to be more supportive. I feel like that. I mean, I think I've said that in the past. I've certainly thought that in the past. I wonder if that's too broader. I think it's also women are socialised to be submissive. Um, I don't know. I forgot what I was going to say again. <laughs> it's like, I suppose you... Well, I emailed Katz the other week because I don't have an agent. This is why I need an agent. Okay. Oh, you, like, you don't currently have an agent? Okay. No. And I was like, I have had offers, but I don't want to go with one for the sake of it. So I emailed Katz and I was like, hey guys, I've lost 10 pounds since I was last on. Can you let me back on? <laughs> and uh, I was... Did you get a reply? <laughs> Yeah, I did get a reply. <laughs> and, and they were like, yes, we will consider putting you back on. <laughs> but I don't know if they were just... But then they were like, who's your agent? And I was like, guys, can you just email me? But I told my friend that, another comic, and she was like, you mental case, why did you do that? Well, I think that is... Why did you do that? Well, because... um Tom Allen was telling me he got himself on a few things and I found it really inspiring, but I would imagine Tom Allen would do it in a normal, sane way rather than a lunatic email like saying that you've lost weight. Um, but I guess you could say that you did it in a very Fern Brady way and coming back to what we were talking about before about being an individual voice. <laughs> like I can't think of many other people who would send an email like that. Maybe that yeah. really would work for you because that's very typical of what you're bringing to the table. Yeah, I mean, well, I invited industry people to come to my show this year and they did come along. So I, I did sort of start thinking, because I haven't had a comedy... I've got a writing agent because I needed one for the American thing, but I haven't had a comedy agent for over a year now and I got a lot more work after that. But I, that wasn't because I left them, it was because I'd done my solo shows. So... Yeah, I've become a lot more proactive and realised how much work you get on your own. But at the same time, I do need an agent now because I've done things like sign contracts without reading them. And I got asked (laughs) to do a corporate. I got asked to do a couple of corporates for the first time this year. And I didn't want them to know I'd never done them before. I shouldn't say that I was on the podcast. So I said, so I said this outrageously high fee. And then I was telling an agent that I had a meeting with and he was like, that's what Hal Crunton would charge. Like, you're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> but and you I didn't get the gig. I thought I was going to... No, I did the, not get I, the gig. I was hoping the story would be that you get the gig. So no. to any uh, agents listening, uh, Fern Brady is available for representation yeah. chats. And to any people that want to exploit her because she signs contracts without reading them, yeah. you should also fill your boots. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, basically, I think I need an agent for that. 
And you just spend so much time doing admin rather than writing jokes. I'd imagine, I don't know, but do you find having an agent you do less admin? Oh, I, I don't think so. I really, then, yeah, I really believe in my management, on, but yeah. I do a lot of, I mean, it's the, I've got the podcast as well, so I do, ugh, I do tons of Yeah. Um, so I, I hope I get a comedy agent soon. What? Because I don't think I can continue in this manner. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring it back to something that is a, a central tenant of what you... I'm sorry, I just remembered something funny. Go on, go on. Well, so this American recording, I'm so excited about it, but I'm so freaking out having to do it on my own. Um, and they're like paying for the photos and the recording and all that. Uh, but they were like, oh, is there anything you want in the photo shoot? And I really want two live wolves, but I'm too embarrassed to tell them that. So I'm delaying it. And I know there's going to have to be a point where I'm like, can you budget for wolves in the picture? So I think if I had an agent, maybe they could cross that. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. You need a wolf budget, a wolf rider. Well, you've, got, just, you've got to have someone negotiate your one. I'm just too embarrassed to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to, I want to bring it back to something that I think is a, a, a central facet of you, which is anger. Yeah. You talked in your shows a little bit before about your anger, about yeah. an incident you had where you attacked someone. Oh, well, in the first show, that was <laughs> that wasn't something I got in trouble for. I kicked a man outside a KFC. I think I'm confusing it then with uh, You're confusing it with a Guardian article. With the Guardian article. Yeah, I would I would never do comedy on that like I think that would be quite insensitive. <laughs> okay, which was... I mean, do you want to talk about that? Are you, or I'd are you got in trouble. I had, I, was, I had a fight when I was 18 and I got uh, fined for it in court, which is terrible. But um, not terrible that I got... I completely agree and stuff. But no, I didn't do any comedy on it. To what extent does anger motivate you and your comedy? Oh, loads, loads Good. and loads. I'm fine. I didn't want to, yeah. That was the assumption I was making. Yeah. I, I didn't want to just be too... Uh... Yeah, I, I got into I went to, I got into comedy because a, a guy I went out with who was horrible took me to see Brendan Burns and I was like, oh, I want to do that. And then he was like, oh, it's not as easy as it looks. Uh, so I'll use things like that to motivate me. Um I use a lot of negative thoughts to motivate me. Although saying that, I started meditating, this is really wanky, but I started meditating loads for like my most recent show and my first show. And that that helps a lot. Because I think I, I did stuff on meditation in my first show. It's okay. quite a popular thing with comedians. Okay. But let's just talk about this idea of anger as a motivating factor. I think that yeah. is, a, that is, I do, I remember that Hal Cruttenden talked about that. And a yeah. couple of other people come to mind, but it's it's certainly not it's certainly a minority of people who are like. I mean, would you say that you have a problem with anger? Uh, not anymore, because like I said, I did meditating and I I went to some counselling, but I've been thinking about um, getting more help with it. It's more like. I have a problem containing my frustration and anxiety. Like, I get so angry at ridiculous things on trains, like people playing their music openly on trains. Um, but I wouldn't say I'm as bad now. 
because I do meditation and I drink matcha tea, which makes you really calm as well. <laughs> I sound like a total hippie. <laughs> and you're also very strong painkillers at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the withdrawal for them now, but they've totally affected my memory. <laughs> Like, I texted my mum the other night to ask where she was gigging. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> she, she was like, what? So that's how much they've affected me. I find in the past, when I've had bad gigs sometimes, it's because, or like my, my instinct has been that this is because of fear. Because I've I've been wrapped up in being scared of them. I've been wrapped up in in, like, what's, what's stopped me getting into my best performative state as a comic is some kind of anxiety or fear that I'm not going to give them what they want or something like that. That's like, for me, I would say fear is probably a motivating factor. Are there kind of equivalents with anger? Do you, when you've had some oh, less yeah. good gigs, when you've bombed somewhere, yeah, do you fall back to a place of being angry with them? No, what, um, what I was going to say is I really love to be, oh, this is going to sound so weird, this isn't as much of a thing. If you're in a green room with me, don't like, this isn't as much of a thing anymore. So if I love, if people like are rude to me backstage and make me feel really angry and bad inside, um, because I find it a lot easier to have a good gig. Like, uh, it's so good to feel bad inside for comedy, but then that can be a trap cause you want to have a happy life and stuff. Um, and when we did Russell Howard, actually, I was worried because I was having such a nice time that I was like, oh, the, this is ruining it because I feel <sighs> too happy inside. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I had to really concentrate on feeling bad. And then what helped was I walked out into the audience and I saw women look disgusted at me. So I focused on that hatred of them. <laughs> um, so that's it, quite a weird way of doing it. It's kind of like you're a Sith. <laughs> oh, I've it's not a, seen those films. Okay. I mean, that's <laughs> Sorry. probably the first and probably the last Star Wars reference. But uh, the idea being that you are kind of using negativity as a force rather than yeah. positivity as a force. But you're using it in a very positive, creative way. If you have a better gig, if you feel more... If the gig does the gig feel more cathartic? Oh, what, yeah, yeah. So, so, so like, are you, if you're funnier when you're angry... Or when you're feeling bad, when that sentence you just said it, there, yeah, it's not so much inside. angry. It's a, I get just a bad, a really bad feeling inside, and I feel really bad about myself. And uh, that's a really great time to gig because you just feel so like like I got into comedy after a really humiliating breakup, so I felt very low. I think this is quite common actually for people to get into. It. I remember on the Sarah Pascoe one, she said she just had a breakup. And I think it's because you just feel so much shame about yourself that you can't get any lower. So you're willing to humiliate yourself more. And you did mention that, that like that's less so now. And also you're aware it's problematic because you want to have a happy life. Like, yeah. can you imagine yourself 10 years from now about to play some massive gig somewhere and no. <laughs> life's going great and you're having to be backstage working yourself up into some sort of position of self-loathing in order to... And does that feel like a long-term strategy? I don't know, because, I mean, I've been very... I'm very happy with my boyfriend and stuff and I've quite a, like, quite a contented home life, but I still have good gigs. 
I've got so many layers of like mental illness that luckily I can draw on that for years to come. <laughs> like a well. Um, okay. But I think a lot of people are trying to find happiness from comedy that they won't ever find. And I used to think every, t- like I have quite a, because if you have mental health problems, you really should try and stay quite even. So when we did Russell Howard, I felt euphoric. And then the next day I got like a crushing low and that's quite a common thing that happens to me a lot. The first time it happened was the So You Think You're Funny final. And um, so, yeah, I think you have to be quite careful with that. And that's how meditation helps because like even when I was getting good reviews at the Fringe, I was kept meditating because you have to just think that it doesn't matter. That sounds really wanky, but loads of comedians that I like meditate. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I've experienced something similar myself. I had what someone, a listener to this show, I described it on the show once and a listener emailed and said, oh, that's a, that's a peak experience, which you can look up on Wikipedia. But uh, that's a thing identified by a psychoanalyst, I think, called Arthur Maslow, which is like a sort of giddy sense of super connectedness to the world where you sort of find yourself yeah. crying for joy in your car. That's yeah, how I, that's yeah, I yeah. have moments. And, um, and I would often, not often, I would have those from time to time. Yeah. And then they would often be followed by a real sort of depressive lurch. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, oh man, I don't want to have to nip those in the bud because they're enjoyable when they yeah, happen. You're yeah. like, oh, this is so great. Yeah. But there's a certain school of thought, I guess, that says you've got to measure them a bit more. You've got to kind of suppress them a little bit yeah. so that you stay a bit more level. Yeah, absolutely. It's why so many comedians get depressed after the fringe. Like, loads of my friends are really down in September. Um, And even Scott Gibson won Best Newcomer this year, and he was saying he was quite low after. Yeah, I mean, it's anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah. I guess seen through the prism of mental health, that when the highs are so high. Yeah. um, So, yeah, you have to be quite careful of that my boyfriend always says i'm a nightmare when i come back from the fringe because i come back expecting to be showered with compliments and uh, he just wants me like wash the dishes <laughs> so yeah that's does i think comedy's brought out my very worst narcissistic tendencies because to be a good comedian you kind of have to be a good narcissist i think to some extent um, why do you say that well narcissists are they're bad, but they're also charming and charismatic and talk about themselves. Like like most comedians fit that profile. And when I went into comedy, I was actually quite shy. Um, like I find being in big groups quite difficult. And then through comedy, I feel like I've become, it, it like draws out this monster in you almost. Okay. Because, like, I met someone that I knew from before comedy came to my show in Bristol the other week. And I was just thinking, oh, God, I'm such a, I'm just such a egomaniac now. Whereas at least before there was, like, some sort of veneer of normalness. (laughs) It's certainly, if you are a narcissistic personality, I think comedy certainly rewards that. Exactly. And it kind of encourages you to do it more. Yeah, you're totally rewarded for... And we sometimes see people we know who are the most raging narcissists do very well. And it's almost yeah, like there's, yeah, there's many yeah. layers of reward. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. Um, it completely rewards you. It's so back to front, like, because I say on accept... The things I say on stage, I would never be rewarded for in a normal job. 
Like, so let's talk about Radges. Oh, which I, I honestly, I really enjoyed. It was properly laugh out loud. Fun. Thanks. And it's um, <laughs> you say that like what really? No, I'm always <laughs> just. Uh, by the way, I loved the cast from it because I can't. I was heavily involved in the casting. So it's nothing against the cast or anything. It was just very dark when I wrote it. And then, yeah. it, then it got turned into this like BBC free thing. Oh yeah. It was quite, it, it had, yeah, I see what you mean. It has a real, um, there's real kind of guts to it. And then at the same time, it's quite brightly colored, isn't it? Very bright. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to make a Scottish program where people weren't talking in this weird. There's a big problem with Scottish TV programming where people talk in a really artificial accent. And when we were casting the actresses, they'd come in and talk normally like me. And then they'd start reading for the part and just have this weird put on accent. So I just wanted to make something that wasn't like anything I'd seen on Scottish TV before. And I don't know if I achieved that. And I'm writing more scripts now, but I've, and I wanted to set them in Edinburgh, but I think I'll just set them in England because it just feels hard to. I tell a lie, I'm writing something for BBC Scotland, so that'll be in Scotland. But it just feels so difficult. Apart from Lemmy's show, there's like nothing on Scottish TV that I enjoy because none of it feels true to life. So, And do you feel that the true to life, did you manage to retain the true to lifeness? This is the one scene in Raj's that I remember being identical to how I wrote it. And it was really eerie seeing how accurate it was there's a scene in the car where the boyfriend starts reading out his writing that was bang on is this there's there's two in the car which one was it there's the one where there's all every no just he's just reading to her i think so i think it's quite it's like erotic poetry Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 that was that came out pretty much exactly how it was written because it's so hard to make sure your thing stays the same from start to finish. But my script editor was Jono from Sheeps. Okay. And he was amazing. And all the stuff that me and Jono thought to have kept in was the stuff people tweeted me saying they liked it. And I had people from, you know, the BBC didn't want, they were like, oh, can we do something in a psych unit because it mocks the mentally ill? And I was like, I am the mentally ill. Also, mentally ill people are hilarious. Like, and also sometimes they can be very tedious. And I feel like I can say that because I've been in one of those units. So it was a real battle to have it set in there. And then since it's been out, I've had people in those units tweet me and say they liked it. So that made me really happy. And I mean, I've read some of your writing about being in the psych unit just for the, yeah, for yeah. the sake of the listener. Do you want to just flesh oh, out right. what that Sorry experience to explain. was? So when I was 16, um, I just stopped going into school because I was really, well, I just went mad uh, and was really depressed and stuff. And then the doctor was like, oh, well, there's this other place you can go to. And then me and my parents got took on this visit of this this like unit which was like you go to school there during the day and you have your meals there and you also get therapy and stuff and I went was it optional you weren't like it wasn't was it uh, no it it was voluntary but it wasn't because my parents made me go okay um but yeah they on the on the day that I went to visit there I said the word crap and the, the nurse went, ah, ah, ah. So I said to my parents, I'm not going in there. It was ridiculous. It's so weird. And all the other people in there were a lot worse off than me. 
And my mum was like, no, you need to learn discipline. And I was like, it's not for, it's, it's a psych unit. And then the next thing I knew, I was in there for like eight weeks and I had a little girlfriend and there was a lot of lesson off in the play. Like, there was no therapy. Uh, I'd basically just study for my hires, which are like Scottish A-levels, then play pool with my girlfriend. It was like a women's prison, basically. <laughs> and then then we'd go to the... Lo- we were allowed out to the local shopping centre and then we'd all talk about the ways we planned to kill ourselves and stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, the, so the original Rajas was very dark. Yes. Um, and then... The BBC took about a year to be like, hey, how about you take this bit out? <laughs> sure. Did you, did you, when you wrote the original dark version of it, did you think that they would make that? No, no, I, t- I just wrote it, um, I just wrote it for something to do. Like, um, I wrote it on spec, as you would say. I'll tell you what happened. At the final of So You Think You're Funny in 2011, a woman was like, darling, are you writing any scripts? And I wasn't, but I said yes. So then I had to write a script to keep up with the lie. And then I just wrote it on and off as a hobby. And then two or three years after that, the producer of Raj's saw me and said, are you writing anything? And I'd seen the comedy feeds before and thought they were shite. Like, so I didn't want to do it. So I had to be sort of persuaded to give them the script. And then I got money for it and then I just sold my idea to them. So <laughs> it can never be made again now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. God. I think um, one of the things I wanted to ask was about the experience of writing, effectively writing a you character. There's a Fern character. There is, but... I mean, not um, that obviously you, you appear in that cameo role as the silent girl. Oh, yeah, that was just so that I could attend rehearsals <laughs> and control everyone. It ah, that's very smart! Yeah. <laughs> well, that was actually my agent did that, because yeah, yeah. I was like, I want to attend all rehearsals. You want to physically be there? Put yeah, yeah. In it. Nice yeah, it wasn't because I really tip. wanted to be an actor. Oh, no, I thought it was a lovely little cameo role. It was but really yeah, nice they, to spot you, because you can't tell it's you for no, until no, one little no. moment. Well, the, the, uh, actually, everyone thinks um, the main character is me, but the, it was actually the blonde girl is me. Ah, uh, okay. But the way I write is I split. Um, I have like an outgoing version of me and then shy version of me, and then I make that into two characters. But You've um, just completely thrown away that sentence, which is... I'm interested in A, that, because that sounds like a really great method to write, and B, why you've kind of gone, oh, let's just just sort of do it like that. Oh, well, so... That's a um, good idea, right? uh, One of them was, like, the person is, like, the one where it's, I wish I'd said all those things, and then the other one's a lot more, that's what I'm like. Um, And where did you, like, is that an idea that you invented, or did someone suggest to you that's a good way of doing it? And that's a really smart way of writing, surely. Oh, thanks. Well, um, I just did it because I did it without realising. It was only down the line that I realised. But I make it, the the process of making Raj's, and I'm aware how lucky I am that I got a pilot and stuff, but the process of making it sent me actually mad. And I hadn't went mad for a good few years, and I don't take medication anymore. And uh, I went mad in a really embarrassing way at a gig in Southend for Gary Jacket. Okay. And I'm, I'm always, I just assumed like people would have heard about it, but probably there's so many mad things happening in comedy. But we like finished filming the pilot 
and I'd been up at like 6am every day. The pilot took two years from start to finish, which is absurd for like 17 minutes. And then I finally finished filming it and got, and I'd been doing like 16 hour days. And then I got in a car and went to a gig in Southend, which was a mistake. And, uh, I was feeling a bit strange and tired. And prior to this, I'd been doing some things that were a bit odd. Like I dyed my hair loads of, I dyed my hair pink, which was out of character. And I also started thinking that this tea was a uh, almost magical tea that was really good for people. <laughs> and, uh, like there was just a few things I was doing that was a bit odd. So I went to Southend and they hated me. Uh, but I've done gigs in Essex before. So normally I'm, I'm quite resilient with that. And then I walked off stage in Southend and started crying as I was walking off stage. And there was this, um, basically Adam Bloom had to cradle me in his arms <laughs> as I sobbed. And then there's this like really lovely, but quite gruff man called Kev McCarthy. I know Kev, yeah. And he was like, oh, she just had to work on some fucking sitcom and she's really upset. She's had a hard day, mate. And Adam was like, going, Fern, the gig wasn't that bad. And I was like, no, it's not that. <laughs> and then Gary Jackets was trying to force my money into my hand and he was like, Fern, you have to get the last train back to London. And I just c- couldn't stop. I thought I was never going to stop crying. So then um, I had to walk back. I had to walk back out in front of the audience, holding like a Sainsbury's bag for life. And then they could all just see that I'd been crying and thought I was crying because of them. So then like a hush fell over the audience. So that was humiliating. So then I went to get my train from Southend, uh, but I didn't want anyone to see me crying. So I walked far down the platform and just like sobbed down the phone to my boyfriend and I cried so hard that the last train to London came and went. So then I was like stuck in Servend. Then my dad had to drive from Milton Keynes to pick me up. And then I cried as soon as I got in the car with him. And I had to go back to the gig in Southend, meanwhile, in that state. And then my dad was like, why are you upset? And I was like, you don't understand because you're working class. You just <laughs> work with trucks. <laughs> so, yeah. But I got I got like money for, for the American thing the other day. And I was like, yes. And I said to my dad, I feel so guilty getting money for nothing. And he went, well, remember the time in Southend? Yeah. So, yeah, that was mortifying. Do you feel powerful or do you feel vulnerable as a comedian when you're on stage? Uh, Sometimes powerful and then vulnerable, generally in Essex and Kent. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, that's a, I understand that experience. Um, but I mean, generally, it's like some, sometimes powerful. Because you, when I said at the beginning of uh, this conversation, one of the things that's so exciting about you is that you don't give a fuck. Like, you, clear, you clearly give a fuck. A lot of things yeah. affect you. But at the same time, I think what you have is a really refreshing... Like, you don't honour any sacred cows. Um, yeah, I mean, that's not... But I don't think that's intentional. Like, I didn't set... Uh, I didn't set out to be the comedian that I am, if that makes sense, I think. I'm just... Like, a lot of the time when I'm just saying something that I think is normal, people act as if it's outrageous. Yes. Which I find quite confusing. So actually quite a lot of it isn't me saying jokes. It's just me being confused and being like, why are you laughing at that? (laughs) 
So do you feel that you've found your voice? Uh, no. Well, the most recent show, I was very happy by the end of it because I felt like I was getting closer to what I wanted to do. Yeah, being more myself. But um, don't people say your third show is when you find it? <laughs> I don't know. I've not, I've not heard that. Maybe. I don't know. I can't At the moment, I can't imagine writing a third show. Um, but then I said that about a second show. But no, I I think once I've, I'm 10 years in, I'll be the most myself that I can be. How much is that part of the goal for you to be completely yourself? Yeah, that's what I want because it's really nice. It was really gratifying this year that people came back from last year's show. Um, it's just really nice when... And like, I did, this will sound really lame, but I did a gig in Sheffield recently and people came specifically to see me and I was really happy because I was only like a little gig. I just really like that uh, there's people that empathise with you because if you feel like a weirdo and then people connect to your material, it just makes you feel so much better. Um, whereas if I was doing, trying to second guess myself and doing the material that I thought I should be doing, that would be harder. Because I feel more like a man inside. It's very hard to... This is why it's hard doing the circuit because you have to battle with what people see of you on stage. And that's why I get tired of being Scottish as well because I don't know what... I don't believe in, like, Scottishness. So I hate people seeing me as Scottish first and foremost. I don't know if that answer makes sense. What do you mean by battling what people see on stage? Like, you want to be seen as as you rather than any of the sort of signifiers that you... Yeah. So, because I got into comedy from seeing Brendan Burns and then Doug Stanhope, um, I've tried to explain this to people a couple of times and it always comes across as if I'm slagging Brendan Burns and I'm not. I've been to see like four of his shows. So basically, I saw Brendan Burns and he was like really alpha male and bellowing on stage and I was really excited but I was also angry and jealous of him because I knew I could I was like I'll never be like that because people will see me as a girl when I come on and uh, that was the case for ages like angry men are praised in comedy whereas angry women isn't it's not something that we like in society it's not seen as attractive and then and then Doug Stanhope as well has a very male following. Like I don't hear of many female comedians that want to be like him. So I just I don't yeah, I don't see how I can become like that sort of comedian without having a sex change or something. Isn't that an opportunity? There isn't already someone doing what it is that you want to do. Yeah. Like, that's great, isn't it? That you that there isn't there isn't yeah. a female brand not not that you should kind of kind of shut it down to being just a female Brendan or a female Stanhope but like that like the the way that you are angry on stage the way in which you're angry the combination that you have of kind of bluntness and brute force and also you're very articulate oh thanks you know when you hit when when you say when you say at the beginning of this this conversation you said um you know maybe America is the place for me part of me Mm. like part of me sort of like wow that's really far forward thinking and kind of good uh that's like that's an exciting thing to hear. I also feel like you're only two hours in over here. You're already getting your audience. Of course, there's a place for you here. Oh, I th- well, I think it's it's not something that I've thought in a. I'm gonna take America away. <laughs> it's more something I've thought in moments where I'm like, 
Oh, I've been described as Scottish again, as if that's a style of comedy. Uh, it's more than moments of frustration that I'm like, oh, I'll just go to America. But then at other times I'm like, shut up, Fern, you've had things. Because I got on stuff like three years in. So sometimes I get annoyed at myself because I'm like, what What have I even got to complain about? Um, forgot the question. <laughs> Last one. Fuck. What are your... Um... What do you think are your superpowers as a comedian? What are your what are the strengths that that you're kind of like? Oh well, I, that's in the bag. I can definitely do that. That that. Mm. I don't mean by saying by including the phrase in the bag. I sort of feel like that's become a trap question. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, what do you feel are your strongest suits? Solo shows. <laughs> but 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 what? But what within a solo show? Uh, oh, this is really difficult. When people come back and see you, why are they coming back? I think they're coming back because they know I'm being myself. I don't know. I think, well, because of my audience are also geeks and weirdos, maybe I think they see a fellow weirdo and it's nice to have that rather than just like... Because I find it creepy when like comedians are like, oh, I'm just a lovable everyman and talking about like talking about their wives and that as if they don't all cheat on them and stuff i find that sinister so i find it weird when people say i'm dark because i'm just being myself um again i haven't answered the question i really i don't know what my superpowers are saying things bluntly maybe yeah i'll say things quite bluntly and i'm forthright what if anything do you think holds you back what things do you see other comics do that you think I wish I could do a bit more like that. Uh, I wish I could book my diary better because I still build it up in my head that a promoter won't want to book me. So um, I missed out on doing the Vodafone thing in Dublin this year because I was convinced the promoter wouldn't book me. And then I emailed him and he was like, why didn't you get in touch sooner? (laughs) So that holds me back. Uh, Yeah, uh, it's weird because I think I come across confident on stage, but I'm really not confident off stage. So that's massively held me back in booking my diary. So yeah, I would like to be more motivated. (laughs) I I often think that. I I think that's true of a lot of people. If you could be booking your diary in the persona that you have on stage... Yeah, get a lot more done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't mean you specifically, but like, I think that's like there, there is often that disparity between guys. I'm in command of this room. Yeah, and oh shit, I'm not. I'm too scared to email anyone. Yeah, because I don't think it's hard being a woman in comedy in terms of you, you do get more TV stuff. Cause, like Finn Taylor was saying, it's hard to get stuff as a white man, and I do, I, I do see his point. But on the circuit, the sexism that I've experienced. Uh, that's what I said in my show this year. It's so par- it's so similar to stripping. Um, and I've had promoters say things to me where I, I just, I refuse to get in touch with them now because I'm like, no, I've done my time as a sex worker. I'm not going to put up with you talking to me like that for no money. Um, or like I said in my show this year, I used to have middle-aged male comedians telling me I didn't have enough life experience to do comedy and just patronising me and that really bothered me. What was the line of the show that really made me laugh? I'd had it in my head for years and I thought it'll never get a laugh. Just um, like they'd say, oh, you don't have any life experience. And then I'm like, I've got so much life experience. I stay in the house now with the curtains drawn. And then I'm like, come back to me when you've 
done your hires in a metal unit and two of your exes have been sectioned and you had a freeway with a policewoman and a beef eater and you've danced for people claiming to be Colonel Gaddafi's relatives and things like that. So yeah, yeah, it's just... But the, for me, the sting in the tail of that line that was that you were being patronised by older middle-class male comics yeah. who were saying... You know, you need some life experience, like me, with my wife and my baby and yeah. my kind of cookie-cutter life. Yeah. I try not to do that to younger comics now. To to do what? To tell to, to be like, oh, you're too young for this. <laughs> Although I think I do patronise Elliot still. <laughs> yeah, we all patronise yeah. Elliot still. <laughs> <laughs> but it is just because it's so enjoyable. <laughs> But yeah, I'm always like wary of that because you never forget people being mean to you when you're in an open spot, I think. Yeah, true story. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, that's oh, what thanks. I was going to say. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Um, you, When I first started this podcast and it was briefly mooted that I do an open spot special. Oh yeah, I was I, a fan. <laughs> yeah, which I, which I am not doing and have no plans to, so please don't email in because I was absolutely swamped. One of the, uh, the first emails I got was from you yeah. uh, as a then open spot. And I remember being really, like, really noticing how pushy you were, in a, <laughs> but in a, quite a positive way. I was yeah. like, like, your name really stuck. I thought, she'll go far. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember you re- saying that. Oh, did it I was, say that at the time? <laughs> I know you said it to me at something else. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I actually, I was a very pushy open spot, and I sometimes think I wish I was that pushy now, because I'm not. But I think it's because... You just have nothing to lose when you're new. Like, I got my first gig from... I just turned up at the last laugh and chef... They they wouldn't book me. They were sort of fobbing me off. So I turned up and then the open spot... His car had broke down, so I got on that way. So I used to just turn up at gigs. And now I'm like, where where has that uh, pushiness gone? I'm just so lazy now. And what do you want, finally, out of comedy? I just want to like tour solo shows and um, I mean I like getting to do bits of telly but I would I just want to do stuff so that people want to come and see me do solo shows because like I was saying when I've done uh, little bits of TV you feel euphoric but then you feel sad the next day but the afterglow from having a great solo show just feels really nice and I don't feel bad about it later so yeah i just want to do solo shows and then i also want to finish these scripts that i'm doing because starting them's easier than finishing them <laughs> so yeah thanks Ben. uh thank you <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, one of my dreams realized now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was fern brady thank you to fern for coming on the show for uh, for for uh, she texted me afterwards and said, I mean, they really are very strong painkillers that I was on, so sorry for losing focus in the middle of a lot of uh, her answers to the questions. She's absolutely brilliant, and she's really, her act and her whole approach is a real breath of fresh air. It's really, I mean, she, it might not be that she just don't give a fuck, as I said in that episode, but um, she, 
she really does have a really refreshing lack of giving a fuck. I think that's fair to say. And it's a real joy to watch. So do check out Fern Brady live at Edinburgh or wherever else you might be seeing her. Remember to come along to Redacted Angel Comedy at the Bill Murray this Thursday, the 15th of December at 10.30. And uh, we should all have a lot of uh, top secret fun there. Um, that's everything. Get in touch. Info at comedianscomedian.com. If you're a cool guy, put PS I'm a cool guy, which means I can send you a, an extremely brief reply as I tear through my email. If you fancy donating to the show, it's Christmas, guys. So why don't you donate the same amount of money that you would spend on uh, sponsoring a goat for a loved sibling. What's that? What's that going to be? 12 quid? 18 quid? Something like that? Or you can set a recurring payment of, for example, £2 a month. You can set whatever thing you want. One or two or five or even ten. I think I even put a... Yeah, I did, didn't I? I put a, a, a thing up there. I think it's I think it's under the heading of Super Beowulf. Uh, you can donate £100 a month, but that's ludicrous. Don't do that. Um, you can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash comcompod. And if you're not a PayPal user either, you can do a recurring payment via Moon Clerk. But you can find all of those at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. And uh, yeah, if you like the show, if you want to support it, then the best thing to do is to come up to me in person, press some cash into my hand, say something cool and walk off into the distance with a real glint in your eye. The second best thing you can do is uh, chuck me some money online. And the third best thing you can do is to share the show with your friends, subscribe to it in their podcast apps, teach them how to use the technology uh, and tell people about it. Leave me a nice review on iTunes, particularly if you're listening in America or some other foreign climb, um, because they're all different uh, iTunes review bases. So if all of my American listeners legged it now to their iTunes account and reviewed the show, favourably, I would hope, gave me a nice five-star review, then uh, that would certainly help me bump up the rankings in the States. And then by the time the Brian Regan one comes out, wallop, maybe that's uh, another little entry point into America. So that's all from me. Uh, I will chat to you now if you'd like to stick around for the waffle. And uh, otherwise, that concludes the podcast. I'll speak to you next week. <laughs> Hello there. Hello. For those of you who've stuck around, thank you. Um, here are... The things. The first thing is, I, I did an interview with a lady called Jenny Desborough this morning for something she's writing, and I'm sorry, Jenny, I don't remember what. But rem if you're listening, send me a message, and I'll, I'll make sure when it comes out, I, uh, I advertise it, push people towards it. But it's a very good interview. I really enjoyed it, and um, I was giving as an example of the way in which uh, little in jokes amongst the podcast listening community become solidified over time. I was using as an example the fact I never meant to call this bit the waffle. I think I just said I'll waffle at you and someone said, oh, I heard that in the waffle one time. Then I started calling it the waffle and now it's called the waffle. I hate that name. I don't like that name at all. The word waffle is such a sort of, um, it's like eating food through a beard. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like that horrible kind of, um, just, it's just the sound of it, waffle. It's just, ugh. I'm not, I'm not a fan. So from here on in, it's no longer called the waffle. I don't know what it's called. Um, but maybe we'll call it something else. I mean, it's dangerous. If I open it up to you, you will quite rightly be barracking me and saying, you should call it the sort of boring trailing off into the distance bit that no one listens to. But there we are. I know some of you do because you send me nice emails about the children's books I should be reading. Um, and that's somewhere a listener sent me a link to a book called Grandad's Island, which I already have. And uh, I, I mean, it's, I highly recommend it, but it's bleak. I see if you can happen upon, I see if you can uh, apprehend why it might be bleak. It, as I describe it to you, these are the terms in which, you know, as you're reading it, you're like, oh, this this kid and he's got a granddad and they go off to an island together and the island's really beautiful. And it's, it's a bit like paradise in many ways. 
And then the kid goes, well, it's time to go now. And I mean, you can see where this is going, right? And Grandad says, no, I'm, I'm going to stay. You're like, don't stay on the island, Grandad. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a very, it's a very beautiful thing. And um, it's very, very painful. I mean, most of the children's books that I read, I'm crying at because they're so beautiful. And they resolve in a narrative way that you just go, oh, the end is buried in the beginning. This is so Aristotelian, this tiny eight-page comic with chewable pages. But it's really well written. And on this occasion, I was crying for a very different reason. So check that out. Um, on the subject of crying, I, I'm only going to say one little thing about the Boutros now. The Boutros is uh, just over ten months old. Ten and a bit now. Coming up, sort of coming up for his first birthday, which is insane. I mean, that can't be the case, obviously. That's, that's not real. Um, that's some sort of weird, demented fantasy land where, where time marches on. Um, but he's very chatty. Surprise, surprise. We talk to him quite a lot. And uh, we, he said a few mum, mum, mums and a few dad, dad, dads. And uh, the other day, he said hello and we burst into tears. Now, <laughs> what a moment. What a moment when you do hello. He didn't say it apropos of nothing. And he probably doesn't know what it, he, he can't know what it means. Surely. So it's not like he greeted us. Because I think the moment when your child is sort of around, just sort of in the house, then looks up at you and says, hello, that's like some sort of Westworld-style AI coming online kind of, hello, father. Whoa, you're in the world now. It, it sort of suggested that, and we got emotional because of that. But really, he was just sort of repeating the sound. But I, I thought that was a pretty advanced guy. I'm not saying, hey, I'm not saying he's sentient, but he's certainly pretty advanced. Um... And uh, that was a really magical time. So it's weird. I, I'm sort of documenting every so often on the podcast I talk about him. And I think I've mentioned this possibly before. I've certainly mentioned it, mentioned it to a few friends socially. I sort of thought, hey, I could do some sort of video or audio diary for the boy. And then, and then should, the, should something awful and catastrophic happen to me, he said, furiously touching and clutching all the wood around him. Then, you know, you do a little video message or whatever for your kid and you're like, hey, this is, even if nothing catastrophic happens, you think this is, this is who I was back then. Hey there, Boudros. This is, this is me now. And then, of course, it occurred to me, no, I've, I've done that in detail over, over several tens of episodes thus far and I've made it oddly public. I should probably also do some sort of little private thing for him as well. I think that he might get a kick out of seeing who his dad was as a flouncy 39-year-old. He might not. He might think, well, this is the most awkward an embarrassing thing ever. That's probably more likely. That's pro probably what I think. I mean, I don't know. Are you someone whose parent, when they were younger, had access to the technology? I suppose, yeah, when my dad was 40, he must have had access to a video camera. He could have done us a little message, and he didn't. Couldn't be bothered. Typical. <laughs> no, that is not typical at all. If there's one thing my dad is not, uh, it is idle. But, uh, I mean, that'd be quite weird, I think, wouldn't it? To see your a parent at the age you are now sending you a message saying, well, this is who I am. I mean, it'd need to be quite an open-ended message, wouldn't it? To not contain an edge of, you'd better be at least as, <laughs> you'd better be at least as X as I am. Um, I certainly wouldn't approach the Boutros from, from that angle myself. But you can see now why this, <laughs> why everyone refers to this as the waffle. Jesus. But I just thought that was rather lovely that, uh, that he would, uh, we just, that was the first thing. He said, he said, hello. And me and his mum looked at each other and went, oh my God, did that just happen? And it was a very magical thing. So if you, if you have been keeping up to date with the occasional Boudros updates, then uh, maybe you'll enjoy hearing that. It was a very, it was a very magical thing. Um, finally, 
I will just quickly talk about the Pappies episode. So this is coming out next week. And uh, Pappies, those of you who don't know, they're a sketch group, a brilliant sketch act, a sketch outfit. And uh, I interviewed them way back in episode 23, if you can remember from that far back. Um, they're dear friends of mine, and we, we've all sort of been going in the comedy world for roughly the same amount of time. And they came on the show on episode 23 and were funny and effusive and intelligent and passionate and all those things. And that was f- four years ago, somehow. I mean, that's like four four or five bootrusses ago in real terms. That's an insane measurement of time. No one used that. And they came back on the show, having then had their two series of their, their TV show, Bad Alts, um, which was not as well received as I think everybody had hoped. So they talk about that. They uh, We really get into detail on, on that. And we talk about where they're going now. They've had this wonderful Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh show that I think they were having in the year when I first, I first had them on the show. We got a multiple five-star reviews, and, and it was sort of the best thing they'd ever done. And, you know, do they plan to go back? What is the plan next? What do you do once you've done that? Once you've achieved all your goals, once you've had your TV series, particularly if you're a, a, a duo or a trio as they are, what is the next move? How do you stay together? What happens next? Loads of stuff on, on that. And um, a really, a really great episode. We laughed. We almost cried. It was good. Um, there, and it took place after... Their own podcast, which I should briefly advertise here, Flat Share, Flat Share Slam Down, and they also do one called Pappy's Bangers and Mash. Both are very funny, both really fun, excellent uh, formats. Uh, Flat Slam is a, a paddle game, um, which they are. They the guests were Eleanor Tiernan and Lloyd Langford, both being superb. Um, and they uh, the show was so fun, and it's like the deal was Christmas special. They do the first half, I do the second half, interviewing them. And I got very panicky in the first half of the show because they were just all, everyone on that stage was just taking the roof off in front of an extraordinarily home crowd of uh, of Pappy's fans. And I was thinking, oh God, I've got to interview them afterwards. And I get very nervous before the show, before records, as you know, before, before live podcasts. Far more nervous than I ever get before stand-up gigs these days. And um, and I was really panicky, and I thought it's all about setting the tone. And lo and behold, I walked on stage after and said, "Right, we're gonna we're gonna do something a bit different now. Uh, this is, you know, we, do you do you know what the thing is that we're gonna do?" And loads of people cheered, and I went, "Oh, they do actually know what it is. That's good." Um, and what what a lovely feeling that was. So um, I don't know is that is that worth is that worth including on this? Is that worth saying? I just think it's sort of quite it's a. I don't know how revelatory it is, but yeah, I get bloody nervous before doing podcasts, mostly because I'm terrified that a guest is going to say something or I'm going to reveal that I haven't done all of the possible research that I could have done in the world. I had to set a little kind of time limit for myself on how much I I research people because it's mostly motivated by interest and also fear, Um, fear of saying the wrong thing. I mean, nearly 200 episodes in now. And if anything, I'm more nervous than when, than when I started. I kind of recognised the sort of the pre-conversation fear. It's what an odd thing. What an odd thing, particularly for someone in this line of work, having lots of conversations with people. What an odd thing to still feel a sort of social anxiety about a conversation which, let's be honest, is taking place almost entirely on my terms. I mean, that's just nuts. So it was lovely. It all worked out very well. And uh, I think you should very much look forward to that episode next week. I'm, I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of this one and, and 
also Angela Barnes, who in another, uh, well, you'll hear later, but um, Angela was someone who I thought about doing uh, a long time ago. And we actually recorded an episode and then we're, I, so we made the decision, I made the decision, I think, not to put it out because um, it was so, her velocity was so extreme. It was so zero to hero, her journey in comedy, that I thought it's, it's not, it's just going to frustrate people. <laughs> Besides, she was so new. She, I mean, I don't think she was in a position really to reflect on her process, as she certainly is now. She's so funny, Angela, such a prodigious joke writer. Um, so that one is coming up very soon too. That's enough from me. Um, I'm going to go and, uh, he, he said hello to me on the phone as well today. Just in a kind of a, can you say hello to daddy? And then you say hello another seven or eight times. And then he go, he makes some approximation of hello. And then uh, I walk into a lamppost on the other end of the phone. It's just great guys. Congratulations to friend of the show. Any time I say guys on an outbreath, I always think of Joel Dommett. And congratulations to Joel Dommett for coming second on, you know, the celebrity programme. I don't watch it. I've never watched it. But obviously I tuned in to see Joel have snakes put on his head. And snakes were indeed put on his head. So it does very much what it says on the tin. But um, what a lovely person he is. And what a joy to see someone be embraced by the public um, for not only... Uh, being <laughs> ripped <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and handsome and all of those uh, other Joel things that Joel is, but um, but also just for being such a naturally funny person. So it's not like he needs the extra publicity, but I was very proud to see my friend on telly and very proud of, of Brett Goldstein for winning this Best Supporting Actor award and Davy Johns for winning an award for, for I, Daniel Blake. What a great time to be alive. Well done, chaps. Uh, good work, everyone. Thank you, Fern. Thank you to Daryl. I keep forgetting to thank Daryl. Hashtag thanks, Daryl. Thanks, Daryl Smith, for editing this show. And also Matt Hoss for logging the episode and Emily Crosby for nearly logging the episode and but being too busy doing other things for me. What a great lady. Speak to you soon. (laughs) 